This morning we're to be in uh, Genesis chapter 36. The title of the message is Who is Edom? Who is Edom? E-D-O-M. Not Edom, like Edom up. To be honest, I almost wanted to just skip over this chapter and just say, hey, it's a genealogy. Let's just forget about it. You know, not forget about it, but for Sunday morning. And, you know, you can go ahead and read it on your own time. Uh, But as I got closer to Sunday and reading it over a few times and considering it, uh, I thought it would be good to not skip it. Actually, probably the Lord thought it would be good not to skip it. But I'm also going to use it as a time to review and get us up to speed where we're at. We're going from the first 36, 37 chapters of Genesis to the last 13 chapters, the last 12 or 13 chapters. And they deal with Joseph. There's a transition that happens from uh, Jacob to Joseph. And the focus turns to him. So before we got there, I thought that this genealogy gave us an opportunity to review where we've been in Genesis. And we remember in the beginning that this is the, the story of God and man, that the whole time throughout Genesis, we've been looking at how God deals with man and woman and how God is not absent, that God is present and God cares about his people. He cares about all people, whether they follow him or not, he cares for them. But as we've seen, kind of hard to receive the blessings of God when we're looking after ourselves, when we're looking for the blessings of another God or of just our own or of the world. But we saw that in the very beginning, God created and he created everything. I think sometimes we forget that. We get caught up in life and go, where are you, God? Well, he made all of this and he spoke it. It says that God said that God didn't toil and trouble to make the world. It wasn't... uh, he wasn't out there making the world and it's like that guy who has all the plates on the sticks and tries to balance them and it's a tough act it wasn't that hard for god to create the world it's an amazing thing and i'm not trying to belittle it but for god it's just who he is and what he does and he said let there be and after he created everything he it says that the lord god made man that there's this intimacy that yeah god made everything but that there is an intimate connection when God made man, that he formed him out of the dust. He didn't say, let there be man. He took dirt and made Adam and breathed into him and showed him the garden, showed him the animals and had him name it. And they had this relationship. And he let Adam see that he wasn't complete, that yeah, he was complete in God, but he wasn't complete as a man. He was complete spiritually, but not physically. And so God made Eve from Adam's rib. And we looked at all the different things that go on with that. But we see that Adam and Eve fall. They disobey the one thing God had said to them not to do. That's to eat from the garden, from the tree in the garden. And God calls them to the cool that night. You know, God had this relationship with them when he would come down and walk with them and talk with them. But they hid. And that's what our sin does. Our sin leads us to hide from God. It's not that, God, where are you? God's here. God's evident. The scripture is evident. He's appeared in history as Jesus. And if we don't see him, perhaps there's some sin in the way. Perhaps it's just a fallen world and not even our own sin. And just the fact that there's sin in the world that we don't see God. You read the news and you go, wow, look at all this stuff. Where is God in all of this? 
And it's really hard to see God when the world is full of sin and death. But when we begin to look, when we begin to see how God is using His people and how God is rescuing people from that sin in the midst of wars and trials and all sorts of things, we begin to see Him if we just take a moment to. If God wanted to hide from us, He would hide from us and we would never find Him, the Scripture says. But God makes Adam and Eve a covering. He doesn't kill them. He covers them. We see the first sacrifice here to make the covering that God requires a blood sacrifice for sin. That the only way to be forgiven of sin is for that sin to be dealt with in death because the, the wages of sin is what? Is death. We see God gives them the messianic promise that through Adam and Eve's descendants, a Messiah will come. That God doesn't just send a superhero to, to save them. He sends his son to save them through the, the, the line of man. And he promises to... Uh, squash Satan's head with his heel. But because of sin, we see that not only is death an inevitable consequence, but there's also the consequence of not living in the garden. And we see that, man, God sent them out of the garden Eden, but guess what? That he goes with them. Now that's not the end of the story. That God doesn't kick them out, but the rest of Genesis is about God being with the people that he kicked out of the garden. And he gave them children, Cain and Abel, two sons, we see that they both understood that there needed to be a sacrifice, but they both sacrificed in different ways. One with a blood sacrifice, another one with just a gift of the best that he had. And God didn't want the best that he had. God wanted his life. He needed life. He needed his blood. And so what does Abel do, or Cain do? He murders Abel. He spills his brother's blood. The sacrifice God demanded was that he spill an animal's blood for sin. But Cain is so caught up in his own sin, and then he spills his brother's blood. And that's what sin does. It twists us. It causes us to sacrifice those around us that shouldn't be sacrificed. It causes us to do and be slaves to sin, to even more things. The Bible says that we are slaves to sin, that when we were in the world, we, we had no choice. We did the things sin wanted until God saved us. And yet God stays with Cain. He doesn't treat him as his sins deserve. Cain deserved death. What does God do? God marks him because Cain is still crying. He's not really apologizing. He's like, God, everyone's going to hurt me now. So God marks him and says that anyone who hurts Cain, uh, God will come after. But Cain doesn't learn. He goes off and does his own thing still. And is, he's even banished not only from the garden, but also from his family and from his land. Then we see this man, Enoch, he was taken. He says that he walked with God and he was no more. That God took him up to heaven. That already God's given us a picture of the last days. Already God's given us a picture. Man, if you just walk with me, you'll be walking through life and one day you'll be in heaven. You won't even notice a transition. That death is not going to have its hold on you anymore. That you're going to step from this life into the next and it's going to be glorious. But it didn't take long for man. Man had begun to call the name of the Lord, but man had begun to do his own thing. And it stunk to high heaven, so to speak. And it says that God was sorry. That even though all man was doing, man was not sorry. But God was sorry. And so he told Noah that, Noah, I'm going to destroy the earth. I have to. You love me. Your family loves me. I don't want to be done with man. I don't want to be done with the earth. I want... There to be an opportunity here for restoration, but it's going to take 
a natural disaster. It's going to take all these people being wiped out and me to start over with you, Noah. And so build a boat. And so Noah builds a boat. People make fun of him. They say, what are you building a boat for? You're crazy. A hundred or so years later, the flood comes. God goes into the ark and shuts the door with them, that God is with them. But the people who are outside, they perish. And all creation suffers. So that the scripture says that all creation groans for the coming of the Lord under the weight of sin. That, man, you look around, you see the storms we even had this morning and the lightning and the thunder and the shaking and the trees falling over that we've had recently. It's like creation is not hanging together. These storms and things that happen, it's because the world is broken. Because all of creation groans under the weight of it. And so Noah and his family are in the ark for quite a while. I'm sure they felt like God forgets them. And so it says that God remembers and not that God forgot them. But he remembers his people. He looks down and he remembers. And he gives them the covenant of the rainbow. And not only can you look up to heaven and see a rainbow and remember after a heavy storm that, man, God loves me. But then God will also look at the rainbow and say, I've judged the world already. I've judged them. I'm not going to flood them again. So God promises not to flood the whole earth again. Noah uh, makes a sacrifice. Noah has an altar and praises God there. And God says, now you can eat meat. It's time to eat meat. So Noah has sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they go out and they, their descendants end up filling the world and making the different populations of the world. But we see that after a while, Noah gets drunk. He has a vineyard. There's not too many people around. He lived through this tragedy. He ends up drinking. And two of his sons decide to cover him. And one of his sons doesn't. We see Peleg, the earth is divided, that in his days something happens, whether it's uh, physical or not, that things begin to change and move and the, the face of the earth becomes different. We see it doesn't take too much longer and people get together and form the Tower of Babel. And what do they want to do? They want to get to heaven. They want to get as close as they can to the stars and worship of themselves and worship of false gods. And how similar is that to these days? Where we just want to go to the moon. We want to go to the planets and Mars and outer space. And so many high minds of the world say it's time for us to leave Earth. Because they know that destruction is coming upon Earth. They know that they can't, this world is awful and they can't escape it, so they want to escape it. But it's, and again, not saying there's anything wrong with going to the moon or Mars. I think all, it's, all that stuff is very interesting. And I enjoy, uh, enjoy thinking about it and learning about it. But sincerely, man, isn't it worship of ourselves? Isn't it us trying to create our own heaven? We'll go to the stars. We'll create a utopia on a new planet. And we'll get there. But God comes down and says, I can't let them do this. They're working in themselves this judgment again. So God calls Abram. He appears to this man in Ur of Chaldees. And he calls him out. This man who did not know God, who is not, you know, we look at, Israel and think of Israel as a nation and oh yeah of course this is God's people this was a man just like any other in a pagan nation and God called him out he was looking for God and God found him he brings him out he changes his name to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah people who would be uh, a part of God's promise he brings his, his nephew even though he shouldn't and his nephew and him have a falling out and his nephew looks at the good land and Abraham says, you can go wherever you want. And Lot goes towards Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah end up falling. And in fact, Jesus even says that, man, to the cities that he visited, if the works that were done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have 
repented a long time ago. We think of Sodom and Gomorrah as being so wicked. And I remember, I think it was Billy Graham who said, if, if God doesn't bring judgment on America, if America doesn't repent, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology in America. If the works done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. We see the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family were rescued by angels. They run out of the city as, as fire falls on the city. But Lot's wife, she turns around and she becomes a pillar of salt. And we see got Lot's lot in life. He went for the good things. He went for the worldly ways. Scripture says he had vexed him, but he lost his wife. He lost his uh, sons-in-laws. He lost his home. He lost everything. He's living in the woods with his daughters. And things get crazy. Things get weird. But we see that Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. They, God promised them a son. They didn't wait it in the flesh. They have Ishmael. But that's not, he's not the son of the promise. And a few years later, they have Isaac. God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as a test. And his whole point is to show him that the Messiah is coming, that God will sacrifice his own son, that Abraham, you don't have to sacrifice your son. God's own son will be sacrificed one day. We see Sarah, Sarah dies. Abraham buys a plot of land. The first part of the promised land that they actually own is Sarah's burial area. We find a wife for Isaac, this girl back in his homeland named Rebecca. She's sweet. She serves. She's beautiful. She loves him. She comes back right away. She's willing to follow the servant of God. Even if she doesn't know where she's going and what she's doing. What a great picture of the church that should be. She's beautiful, holy, adored in holy things. Willing to serve. Willing to go. No matter the call. They have children, Jacob and Esau. And God says, you have two nations in your womb. That these twins were fighting so much that they were nations in her womb. They ended up fighting not just from in their womb, but throughout their entire lives. Uh, through fights, for uh, looking for a blessing over the birthright of the stew that Esau comes in, he's hungry, and Jacob kind of connives him and says, I'll give you this bowl of soup for your birthright. Esau was a man of the flesh. So that Jacob had to run away. He ran away to Laban after his mom convinced him to trick his dad for the birthright. His dad was so convinced he was going to die. He didn't die for decades and decades. He's just probably going through a midlife crisis and having some health problems, and he thinks it's all over. Jacob runs away. He runs away to his uncle Laban. He falls in love. Laban gets him to work for seven years, gives him someone else to marry. He has to work seven more years. Laban, his close uncle, just pulls the carpet out from him at every turn. And so God... Uh, works it out in Jacob's favor with speckled and spotted animals and things that shouldn't work out for him naturally work out and he ends up getting a huge blessing so he runs away Laban chases him after many years this happens and it was time he needed to get away it was it was not a healthy place to be see that they make a deal they go their separate ways and then Esau comes back and Jacob was afraid of Esau so Jacob sent all these gifts before him and separate his family and has he's not trusting God he's worried about what's going to happen but Esau forgives him and doesn't want any, you know want anything to do with killing him anymore but he does show him that he's strong and that hey you know basically I could have killed you if I wanted to but I didn't and then Jacob still doesn't follow the Lord as closely as he should and his daughter Dinah suffers and his sons go out and 
kill the whole city. We see that Jacob finally gets it, that God spe- speaks to him and appears to him again like he did in the dream many years ago, that through these, this man's life and all these people's lives, God has been with them, God has spoken to them, despite the fact that these people aren't perfect pictures. Joseph, will see, is a much better picture of how we should be in our walk with the Lord. But these people, they go back and forth. They rely on their flesh, even though God has promised them and shown up to them. And that gives me hope because I know that I'm not perfect. <laughs> I'm not like Joseph. I'm more like Jacob or Abraham. But they go to Bethel and they worship God there. They worship God there. Before the scripture goes to Joseph, I, I'm, I'm glad it's faithful to show us about Esau. And so chapter 36 is about Esau and his descendants. And if we're going to look at his descendants, we should look at Esau a little bit. We see that remember when he was born, they named him Harry. And he was Harry and the Hendersons. He was covered in so much hair from head to toe. Maybe he had something wrong with him. Or maybe he was just Harry boy. I know my little boy was born. He had hair on his ears. Little Timothy Judah, little hairy ears. <laughs> little hairy back. Jake's back was a little fuzzy too. But remember that Jacob even used goat skin to trick his dad into thinking he was Esau. So this guy was, was definitely hairy. But he was a man of the flesh. He was a man who went out and hunted. He was a man who did not hang around the house much. He was always out doing something and, and killing something and cooking something. Remember, he comes back and he didn't have anything to, to make because he had a bad day hunting. And so he uh, trades his birthright for a bowl of stew. He did not care about his family's traditions at that moment of need. He just cared about his stomach growling. But he was an outdoorsman and he was favored by his dad. You see, his family played favorites. And he was favored by his dad. He didn't have the best relationship with his mom. Uh, but he liked to cook. He liked to cook the things he made. And that's what um, Isaac wanted was something that his son made. And I think about this cooking channel we watch on YouTube, uh, Cowboy Kent. And he's always got these great outdoor cooking things. And they're so delicious. It makes your mouth water to watch. And I'm sure that Esau in some way was one of those outdoorsmen. He cooked his, his meats. He probably ate them pretty rare. He smoked his meats. He did all those things. Um, but... He just didn't care about the more important things in life. Again, he had a lot of men who followed him. He, he becomes successful. He becomes blessed of God in a way where he's got a lot of possessions, a lot of people. He's basically got an army, but he still forgives his brother. He shows his strength to his brother when they meet up, but he doesn't hurt him. You know, he's become a man where, hey, it, you don't matter to me that much in that way anymore, brother. Maybe it wasn't all forgiveness. Maybe there was... More of just flexing there. I don't know. Because he evidently wasn't godly. He may have had a heart change toward his brother, but he wasn't seeking God. There's a lot of people in this world who may forgive you or may be nice, but it doesn't mean that they know God or or are seeking God. They have a lot of blessings and they probably earn them. Man, if Esau had sought God, how different things could have been. Malachi 1, 2-5 says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Esau was a man of the wilderness. 
Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. That man, Esau and his people, the Edomites, says that God hated them. Well, then is it their fault that they did that? No, as we'll see, but man, they hated God. And so God came against them because they came against the Israelites. But it didn't have to be that way. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21 says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And just like Cain and Abel, Esau had a choice. And Esau consistently chose the flesh. He chose the flesh. Jacob, he wasn't perfect. He was far from it. But he always turned back to God. Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. That man, the difference between a righteous and a wicked is that the righteous, when he falls, he says, Man, like that man, he beats his breast. God, forgive me. Help me. But the Edomites say, No, we've fallen. God's brought destruction on us for one reason or another. We're going to rebuild it ourselves. It's interesting, after September 11th, how America began to turn towards God and we used to raise the flag and churches filled up. And in fact, that's what part of what brought me back to the Lord. And we've rebuilt New York City and I think that that's good. And there's that memorial there. But I think we've sort of rebuilt ourselves as a nation. We haven't let God rebuild us. If you look at the changes in America in the past 18 years, since September 11th, there was a real opportunity for repentance there. Real opportunity to turn back to God, but instead we've rebuilt ourselves in our own image. We've become so overly tolerant of those that hate us. And God says, They may build, but I will throw down. We can build all we want in our own ways, but man, if God is not the foundation, we're building in vain. And I'm sure that God gave Esau plenty of opportunity to turn to him. Just like we've been given opportunity to God every day, every moment, every decision. Think about how many decisions you're going to make every day. Where are we going to sit? What are we going to eat? Should I put my leg up? Should I put my leg down? You know, uh, should I drink this? Should I eat that? Should I do this? Every decision we have is an opportunity to choose and turn to God. But Esau, as a man of the flesh, chose his own will over God's. Because you can't make someone choose. God couldn't make Esau choose. God knew what Esau would choose from before the beginning of time. And for Esau, when he lost the physical blessing in his life, it was enough to drive him to murder. Just like Cain. When Cain lost the blessing, he saw his brother had more blessing from God than he was. What did he do? He killed his brother. And that's what Esau wanted to do to Jacob. Matthew 19, 21 through 22, Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And man, this man came to God and said, God, what do I do? God said, sell everything and follow me. Because the man thought he was perfect in every other way, but you know what? He wasn't. 
He had another God in his life, and it was, it was worldly blessing. First Timothy 6, 10 through 12. And again, it's not that Jesus didn't want him to follow him. It's that this man let these things get in the way. And 1 Timothy 6, 10 through 12 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and the greediness. It's not money, it's the love of money. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's okay to have money, but don't love it. How many people want more money and what do they do? They pierce themselves through many sorrows. They get in a job that destroys them and they get in a job that takes them out of the ministry or they get a job that their pursuits take them away from their families. Workaholics. And so Esau's love of the world and the things of it cost him his eternal blessing. That man, the fact that he wanted this earthly blessing and he wanted whatever he get when he could get it right now, he missed out on the eternal. I'm sure God had plenty for him if he would have just turned to him. His own perceived loss of his temporal blessings, like a, the blessing of his brother, led him to miss out on eternal blessings. And we look at the world in our fleshly eyes, we look at our gains or our losses in a fleshly way, you miss out on what God has for us. Maybe God didn't allow you to get that job. Maybe God didn't allow you to get that house or have that spouse or whatever it is as a blessing. And you might have eternal blessing. Maybe they would have taken you away from the Lord like Solomon's wives did. And you would have missed out on heaven. Maybe you would have missed out on that time with your kids. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, if you're not receiving a blessing that you think you need, know that you need to wait for God's blessing. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that was to the rich young ruler. God says, your treasure is somewhere else. You've got to put your treasure in heaven. And if that means selling your stuff to get your treasure in heaven, do it. And Esau's heart and his treasure was in the world. I think James talks about this in James 4. He says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires that pleasure and war in your own members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. Then you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Lord, we want to be your friends. We don't want to be friends of the world. We want to be friends with you, God. So help us learn from Esau and the Bible. And God would uh, help us to let go of anything that keeps us from following you. And just to put our faith in you and wait for you to provide the blessing. And not try and make it on our own. In Jesus' name. Amen. And this is why there's war. Because we're always fighting. We're always competing. That's why there's rich and poor. Because sometimes there's other things that go on. Sometimes it's poor because you don't work at it. And you're rich because you work. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's what's good about capitalism in a way. Is that you want to work. You can work as much as you want. And if you put your mind to it, I'm, I guarantee you'll make some money. And you'll be better off than you were. 
the problem is, is that there are people out there who are greedy and they'll take and they'll destroy others for as much as it takes to get their own. We see that in the news a lot lately among the ultra rich. But it happens at all levels. It happens even among brothers and sisters. How much they want to fight for their other toys and for that last pizza pizza or whatever it is. Because we want it. And this happens even among brothers, twin brothers, as we see here. But Jesus said, Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. Let's go on. Uh, Genesis 36. Let me read the first five verses. It says, Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. So that's the answer. Esau is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and I'm going to butcher these names. Aholobama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite. Timothy, aren't you glad we named you already? And Basemath, Ishmael's daughter. Interesting, right? Ishmael's daughter is in with Esau's family. Sister of Nebajoth. Now Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholobamath bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. See, these are obviously the wives and sons and daughters of Esau that he has children. He has a blessing. He has a family, just like his brother Jacob does. Does he not? And although the scripture focuses on Jacob, as we've seen in the past many chapters, I, again, I love that it's faithful to tell all the history and to tell about his brother as well. Um, a brother who had become an enemy of Israel. Again, just because Esau didn't love God didn't mean that God didn't love Esau. This man who didn't seek after the spiritual things of God is still listed in the Bible. We see there's two nations here, just like Ishmael and Isaac. One was the son of promise and one was the son of flesh, but both were descendants of Abraham and both received the earthly part of the promise to become great nations. And the same thing here with Esau and Jacob. We have the son of the flesh, so to speak, and the son of the promise. Verse 6 says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. We see a little bit of insight into the split that they had before, that as they were there, now even though as Esau wanted him to follow him, there wasn't enough room there. There wasn't enough land there for both of them. Just like there wasn't enough room for them in the womb together. And in the flesh, hey, get out of my way. This is my side. This is your side. You know, stay on your side of the room. You know, the kids are going to share their rooms for the majority of their lives, I think. They'll probably have a line down their room at some point. Say, this is my side of the room. This is your side of the room. And they tend to let their toys get mixed and it tends to create issues sometimes. But... Jacob, again, didn't tell his brother about the call to Bethel when they were there. Esau maybe wouldn't have cared to go. Maybe he was too fleshly, even if he did tell him. But both of them were in the same place together again. Neither of them was acting spiritual. And there wasn't enough room for them both. How sad was that when there wasn't enough room for two brothers to dwell together? Couldn't they have said, you know what, we're brothers. Let's not split ways. Let's go find a place where we can dwell together. Let's find a place where we can be in peace together. And still be family. I believe if they both sought the Lord, they would have found good pasture enough for both of them, perhaps in Bethel. And it's sad when the church gets separated in the very same way. 
the church acts like there's not enough room for the other church down the street. They act like there's not enough room for them in the same town. But there's plenty of room. There's plenty of lives to be reached. Does every person in that town come to your church? And if they could, would they even be ministered to you by you? Couldn't they all be reached if you just worked together? Wouldn't it be a better example to them even if they never come, even if they never choose, choose Jesus, if they see two churches down the street from each other loving Jesus and serving Him together? It's not a competition. God has enough blessing for both of you. Because if you're a good church, don't think you're the only game in town. Because it's not a game. There's not a champion between this church and that church. There's not a winner between this pastor and that pastor. There's not a ministry that's better than another ministry. Just because there's more fruit doesn't mean it's better. It's a different fruit. It's a different tree. An orange is not better than an apple. Well, depends on where you live and what you do, but sincerely, there's only one champion. It's not you or me, it's Jesus. So I ask and I wonder, why is the church divided? Is it not what the half-brother of Jesus, James said, as we read before? It's because we lust and we do not have. We desire and we do not ask. Verse 9 says, And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. And I just want to touch on what the commentary says. I cheated a lot in this one because there's not too much to take out of it other than you know the couple of things the Lord showed me and then a couple of things from the commentary as far as these specific verses, unless I'm sure you get in and look into the whole, like, where do these people live and, you know, get into the each meaning of every name. And there's probably something to it, but that's not for us today. The commentary from David Guzik says, Esau is the father of Edomites, that Edom and the Edomites are mentioned some 130 times in the Bible. And they were an important group of neighbors of Israel, which I think is important that God calls out who they are and who they were and where they came from so that it all makes sense later on. It says, When the Israelites came through the wilderness to the promised land in the time of Moses, the Edomites refused them passage through their land in Numbers 20. And this was a source of great discouragement for the nation. How discouraging it is to have those close to you get in the way. Those close to you want to stop you from going where God has got you going. Even if they mean well. I was talking with a friend and he was just sharing with me some things that they're going through and how discouraging it is at times. And it is. When you feel like God's showing you something and leading you somewhere and someone that you trust, especially a family member, especially someone who claims to be a believer and is a believer and they do nothing but discourage you and get in the way, that's hard. And man, when the church says that, It says, even so, God commanded special regard for the Edomites among Israel. He says, you not, shall not abhor the Edomite, for he is your brother. In Deuteronomy 23, even though they get in your way, even though they fight you, don't treat him as an enemy, treat him as a brother. And is that not what we're supposed to do, to love our enemies, right? And really, who are enemies? Is it the church down the street? Is it your brother? Is it your father? Is it whoever is getting in your way? No, it's the enemy. The enemy is your enemy. These people are your brother brothers. 
It says, In the days of Saul, Edom was made subject to Israel, 1 Samuel 14, and David established garrisons there, 2 Samuel 8. But later, the days of Joram, the son of Ahab, the Edomites became independent of Israel. So they have this relationship with Israel later that, yeah, look at that. The older is bowing down to the younger, right? Was that not prophesied? Several of the prophets spoke about and against Edom include Jeremiah and Ezekiel. See, Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill the baby Jesus, was an Edomite. Isn't that interesting? From the time Islam conquered the Middle East, the region has been virtually unoccupied, except for a few Bedouins and military outposts. has been brought to nothing, as Obadiah had prophesied, because the entire book of Obadiah records an extended prophecy against Edom. These people, because they continued to, to, to rally against God, God made them desolate in the wilderness, right? Edomites in Mount Seir. The Edomites also held the rock city of Petra. This is actually interesting. You go over, I think it's in Jordan. You go, there's that, the valley, and there's this city in the middle of the mouths that they carved out. They even showed it in the front of it, at least in a, uh, Indiana Jones. Uh, but uh, Petra was so defensible that it was said that a dozen men could protect an entire city against an army. Uh, but they're still an adversary. They're still getting in each other's way, even after generations. I mean, if they just repented, it could have been different. History would have been different. Proverbs 17, 70 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We know that this brother and Jacob and Esau were against each other. But man, I'd also like to think of this verse as a brother is born for adversity and one that you can count on in times of adversity. Man, if, you, if brothers are in the flesh, they're going to fight, they're going to butt heads, they're going to go at it. But if they're in the spirit, they're going to protect each other. They're going to defend each other and not be each other's adver adversary. And again, if only Edom had been there to support Israel, to be a brother, how different history could have gone for both of those nations. And we'll read through 10 through 43 just to get through it. Um, it says, These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau, and the sons of Eliphaz were Tomen, Omar, Zepho, Gatem, and Kenaz. Uh, forgive me, guys. But now Timna was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Uh, so all sorts of weird family dynamics continuing on. But these were the sons of Reuel, the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Abimelech, Esau's wife. I'm not going to read all the names. Um, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau, verse 15, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau. So it begins to lay down that these guys become the chiefs of the tribes of the nation of uh, uh, Edom. Chief Korah, Chief Gadam, Chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz and the land of Edom. They were the sons of Edah. These were the sons of Rael, and so on and so forth. Um, these were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land. And so obviously they have other people that they're involved with and mixing in in the area. Um, Lotan's sister was Timna. So essentially we see that these guys of the land, his sister looks like she was the concubine listed earlier. But these were the sons of Shobai, Avalon, Manath, Shepho, and Amnon. These were the sons of Zibion. Uh, this was the Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. And among this um, genealogy, verse 24, it calls out that this guy found water in the wilderness. So that's a big deal. You know, you find water in the wilderness anywhere. That's the place where you can set up, be able to have your your cattle and pastures. So this guy, um, you see that there was even a blessing in this wilderness for them, that they found water, that they were able to survive. These were the children of Anah. These were sons of, and I'm just going to go on. It says, now we get on to the kings that landed in Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. So they had kings in Edom before the, the Israelites had kings. 
Bela, Bela, Jobab, Jobab, Husham, Hadad, Hadad, Samla, Masrika, all these guys. Uh, when Saul died, Belhanan, the son of Achor, reigned in his place. When Belhanan, the son of Achor, died, Hadar reigned. So we got all these different guys. And then we have the chiefs, according to Esau. Um, and it says that these were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. So Esau has all these kids. They go on, they get families bigger and bigger and bigger. They become kings. They, they have lands. They take over the land. There's all these other people that rule in the area. And that's who these guys are. And again, I just want to touch on the commentary in this because I think it's good. It says, I mean, obviously it's good. Uh, David gives us a man of the Lord. But it says, Esau was obviously a blessed man, but he was hated and rejected in regard to being chosen for a critical role in God's plan of redemption. You know that this man Esau, man, again, I believe that if Esau had just turned to God, God would have had a great plan for him. But instead, the plan that God allowed in his life was one of uh, not being good, being fleshly. He says, if God blesses so abundantly those who are not chosen, what is the magnitude of his blessings for those who are chosen? If non-spiritual people experience such outpourings of merely common grace, how great must the special grace of the generate be? And a guy named Boyce says that. And man, if God's able to even bless them, like we even see the water there, we see the lands, we see the nations, we see the kings come from the son who was firstborn and was a descendant of Abraham, but he didn't have the promise the way Jacob did. Man, how much more... Should the promise have been on Jacob? We see that Amalek is in the list and the Amalekites come from him and they're one of the enemies of Israel. We also see the descendants and their names apparently didn't reflect a godly heart. Names like Gazelle, Wicked, Advantage, Mountain Goat, uh, one is even Baal. That this family was not a, a family of people that, that chose God, even though they, they had descendants that was Abraham not that long ago. They chose somebody else. And there's this, this interesting man named Jobab there, the son of Zerah. And a, a, a commentator named Clark says, Many have supposed that Jobab is the same as Job, so remarkable for his afflictions and patience, and that Eliphaz was the same, who in the book of Job is called one of his friends. But there's no proper proof of this, and apparently there's many reasons against it. But it's interesting that perhaps that Job somewhere came out of there. I think that would be interesting that uh, in the midst of all these wicked people, Job comes, a man who fears God. But Romans 9, 10 says, And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Again, God knew what Esau was going to choose before he was even born. doesn't mean that Esau was a slave to fate. That, man, well, if God knows what we're going to choose, then I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and, and so be it. It's not the way it works. You still have free will. But God, being omniscient, saw what he saw would choose because he knows our hearts. Like Jeremiah 17 says that, man, God knows how wicked our hearts are. But he also says at the end of there, he says, Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters. He says that those who seek me will be blessed. Those who forsake me, I mean, if you forsake, it's like you're running out of gas in your car and you see next rest stop 200 miles and you decide, nah, I'm not going to stop at this last gas station. Whose fault is it that you ran out of gas? It's the same way. If your life is going badly and poorly and you've rejected the blessings of God, well, whose fault is that? Is that God's fault or your fault? I think it's pretty easy and obvious. 
Ezekiel 36 says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, and from your idols I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. God says, if you just turn to me, I've got everything for you. And Esau had that choice, but you know what? He chose the flesh. And I wonder, what will you and I choose? We, we choose flesh or faith? Because it's one or the other. We can't have faith and be in the flesh, and we can't be in the flesh and have faith. And again, next time in Genesis, we're going to start down the path of a man who lived a life of faith. A man who God would greatly use. But you know what? That use and that great use came through great trial. And isn't that a really good picture of the Messiah who is to come? That Genesis starts out and begins with the fall of man and the promise of a Messiah to come. And it ends with a picture of that Messiah and a man named Joseph who we'll take a look at real soon. So Lord, we ask that you'd help us to live a life of faith and not by flesh. That where we've been fleshing out, God, please forgive us. Help us uh, turn to you and not to our flesh for the answers and for our strength, God. Because our flesh fails us, God, even this week with my back going out. I can't even trust in myself. Uh, so help me trust in you and uh, find my strength in you. May you hold us up and our family up and your people up. May you bring unity among the church. May the church be one brothers who stick with each other in adversity as opposed to being their adversity. And God, we love you and pray your hands on all the pastors and ministers in the area. Use them greatly, God. And we pray that you would reach the lost and their hurting and those who have turned to their own ways and the worldly ways. God, we know that you have plenty more blessing for them. You will never run out. So God, may they come to you and be full. Open their mouth wide. In Jesus' name, amen.